If you're wondering how to navigate difficult relationships, communicate more skillfully, regulate your nervous system in the midst of conflict, and set fierce boundaries that heal and empower, you are in the right place. You belong, right here where you already are. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy, and I invite you to grab a cup of tea and your favorite blanket and rest as you join me on this journey home to yourself. Welcome back to the Welcome You podcast. I'm Dr. Cindy, and this week I'll be sharing some of my personal material as fodder for offering you some skills and practices for dealing with extremely toxic behavior from a co-parent and big life transitions. These can often feel like catastrophic events and send us into a thought spiral where we are imagining the worst case scenario and become very prone to anxiety and rumination and being susceptible to intrusive thoughts and unskillful coping. My daughter is 10 years old and she's facing probably the biggest life change that she's been through. Her father, who I've spoken about before on this podcast, is leaving and he's moving out of state. Uh, He's going to be about 12 hour drive away and he's going to live in his mother's basement. And this comes after a number of years of really struggling to make ends meet financially. We're in a very, very rural area where it's difficult to find work. On top of that, he also really struggles with pretty severe depression and entitlement. I have been enabling all of this behavior for a number of years by choosing to pay his rent and kind of carry him along in the interest of trying to keep my daughter's father in her life. And recently, towards the beginning of this podcast, I started to realize that my enabling and funding his illness was really not helpful. And we were stuck in this dynamic of a lot of back and forth over text messaging and email. And in response to really simple logistical questions and efforts on my part to connect my daughter with her dad, he would respond with all of these kind of threats of abandonment, uh, claims that he was worthless, and really blaming me for his situation. And through it all, I've really done everything that I can to try to stay rooted in kindness and compassion, to be understanding that his coping skills really are non-existent and that he does these lashing out behaviors towards me as an attempt to get needs met and that he's really not skillful with his means. And I've done a couple of episodes now where I've mentioned some strategies for dealing with toxic behavior like this. And the number one strategy that I put into place really firmly about a month and a half ago was to not participate. And so this meant that 
I blocked him on my phone, so I wasn't able to receive text messages or voice notes from him, which was one of his primary ways of lashing out at me. I also filtered his emails into a smart mailbox on my computer so that when I look at my email, there's no way for me to see whether or not I have an email from him because before, when I would sit down at my computer to do some writing or to do some work, I would notice that I had an email from him and it would immediately trigger me into this pattern of ruminative thinking and anxiety and severe stress. And it was very difficult for me to unhook myself from this spiral once I got locked into it. So blocking him and putting up that really kind of fierce boundary was a real act of kind of radical compassion, both in service of myself and my own peace and well-being, but also it turns out that it seems like it's an act of kindness for him as well, because when he can't engage with me, when he can't get a response or get fed off of my instability or my anger or my upheaval, then he he stops. He realizes, I think, that no response is the response and he has to find a different way to get that need met, which is really you know, what's needed for somebody who has been enabled in their depression and in these kind of narcissistic behaviors for their entire life is that they need to not actually be coddled and to be given the message that they can indeed do hard things and that they can indeed rise up and take care of themselves and meet their own needs for emotional well-being by themselves without being coddled and treated like a child and enabled. So this has been quite a journey for me and it's been over eight years since we've been separated and divorced. And I, I've spent a lot of time over the past few weeks really reflecting on my own participation in this ongoing dynamic and also, you know, working with the kind of multiple layers of shame that have arisen in me as I have kind of unmasked my own participation and, and my own behaviors. My daughter came home from her dad's yesterday and she's she's having a lot of big feelings. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, he has announced that he is leaving. And rather than than just leaving without, you know, saying goodbye or making the transition easy, he has chosen to really draw it out. And so now on the weekends when she goes to him, there's this whole process of upheaval that happens as they have these big talks about what's going to happen in the future. And he promises that he'll you know, keep in touch and that he'll come and visit and that she'll be able to come and visit him. And she spends connected time with him, hoping that they can really continue their father-daughter relationship, but also afraid that she's never going to see him again. And meanwhile, he also seems to be filling her head with all of these ways that I hurt him and I put him in this position and him leaving is my fault. 
And so she comes home very confused. And this is a 10 year old too. So, you know, I can see it when she walks in the door, the way that she just holds her body and she's serious and heavy. Yesterday when she came in, I asked her what's wrong. And she didn't answer. She just sat there kind of with a stony stare. And I switched my tactic and I said, well, what's right? What's right right now, sweetie? And she said, I don't know. Then she asked me, how do I deal with big feelings? And, and how do I handle my anger and my frustration and my sadness when it seems like everything is falling apart? And holy smokes, what a big question for a little girl. Yes, it breaks my heart to hear my sweet, innocent daughter having to ask me these things. And also, I really wanted to make space for her to have feelings. And so that's what I said to her. I said, the important thing is to let yourself feel what you feel and not feel like you have to shove it down and pretend that you're okay and hide it from yourself and from everybody else. Because then what happens is it gets trapped in your body and it can turn into anxiety or depression or illness. And she said, mom, I think I'm depressed. And so this is kind of the reality, right? Of living in a situation with a dysregulated co-parent who is threatening abandonment and actually planning this departure from her life. I offered her what I could, which is one space to, to feel your feelings. And, and one thing I told her, I got this from Mr. Rogers. We have a piano in our house. And I said, you know, you could go over to the piano and play your feelings on the piano. And she instantly stood up and started banging and banging on the piano. She even kind of climbed up on it and stomped on it with her feet. And I, as much as I wanted to stop her and say, whoa, careful, take care, be, you know, that's an heirloom piano that's been in our family for decades. <laughs> I let her just keep going. Uh, and she stomped and she flailed and she banged on the keys. And after a few minutes, she, she walked back over to where I was sitting on the couch and I could see that she was kind of on the verge of feeling some big things. And um, I said to her, you know, sweetie, underneath of anger, it's usually sadness. And that's when she opened up and started to really express big feelings to me. And a couple things happened there. One, I was, I was really grateful that she felt safe enough to feel her feelings, that she was willing to cry and to feel and to say what she needed to say and to let out these emotions. The other thing that happened was I, I noticed my temptation to want to be able to say the right thing and make it better. And I held myself back. And what I did is I just held her and I just let her cry. And I said, take all the time you need. You can feel this as much as you want. I welcome your feelings. I didn't want to do anything to make her think that I was trying to make her feelings go away or put a lid on it or change it or fix it. I really wanted her to have space to feel feelings. And she did. And so I think this is one of the biggest gifts that we can give her. The next thing I told her once that big wave of emotions had kind of passed and she had moved into a little bit more connection and present moment awareness with me was, 
you know, these feelings are big and they have a lot of energy in your body. And so it's important to move your body so that you can keep things flowing. And I gave her this analogy that I heard recently of a hose. And if we think of our, our feelings and our, our felt experience as the water moving through the hose, if the hose gets kinked, then we have this buildup of pressure and nothing's coming out the other end. But we have this kind of bulging and pressing and surging experience. And then when we start to unkink the hose, it kind of wildly sprays all over the place for a moment before it comes back into a flow state. You know, we want to be aware of keeping our energy moving during times that we're having big, big feelings. And so this is how I worked with my daughter yesterday when she came home with this big set of emotions and she brought some things to the situation that also created in me quite a bit of stir. And this morning as I'm recording this episode, I wanted to just kind of bring those feelings to life in the landscape of how I am trying to work with them skillfully this morning because there are big feelings and I am noticing myself getting hooked into intrusive thoughts. I didn't sleep very well last night. The specifics of the situation uh, might give some context here. She says that when he moves out in the beginning of April, he wants to take her with him. And she says, mom, can I please go? And first of all, I'm like, fuck no, you can't. I mean, if he's announced that he's leaving, he doesn't get to take you with him. And, and what he wanted to do was drive her with him 12 hours away to another state and have her be with him while he is unpacking and trying to settle into his mom's basement and then he wants me to pay for a plane ticket for her to fly as an unaccompanied minor back here. And I actually live four hours from the airport. So he also expects me to take a full day and to drive four hours to pick her up at the airport and then drive her four hours home. And I mean, right away, all of the warning bells and red flags are going off. And I'm just hearing, no, this is absolutely not okay with me. First of all, it would mean missing a week of school, which there's a reason that I checked the box for 100% decision-making in education. And it's because my ex does not have any respect or regard for consistency in education. And so I wanted to make sure I had some agency in that department. And I don't think that just taking a week off to drive to a different state with your depressed father who is leaving you is a good reason to miss school. I also don't want her first flight as an unaccompanied minor to be at the tail end of saying goodbye to her dad. And she's going to spend the whole thing sad and worried and anxious and feeling all these feelings. And she's going to be alone. And that's absolutely not what I want her first experience of flying by herself to be like. So there's so many ways that this situation is a hard no to me. 
And now what I'm actually being confronted with is this responsibility that I have to say no and also the knowing that that's really going to upset my daughter and she's going to see it as a betrayal and as another way that I am trying to keep her dad away from her. I feel like I would be willing in a few weeks or a few months after he has settled into his new routine, I might be willing to take her to the airport and, and let her go for a weekend while I spend my weekend kind of in the city doing some shopping and some other kind of appointments that I would need to make. But I'm not willing to go out of my way to fund this departure from her life. So these are the thoughts that have kind of been spinning through my head all night long, keeping me from sleeping. And here I am the morning after kind of wrestling with this dilemma. I want to provide her with stability and routine and rhythm to help her recover from this big transition in her life. And everything about her dad is unstable and arrhythmic, and he has no sense of the value of routine for mental health and for raising a child. And so I'm kind of battling this inevitable change in my relationship with my daughter, where in order to do what I know is healthiest and best for her, it's going to come at the cost of her potentially believing that I am intentionally trying to keep her father away and feeling all kinds of anger and emotions about that. This is this landscape of tough love. I remember encountering in my own childhood when my parents had to say no or put their foot down in a way that really didn't make me happy. And also, there seems like there's no way I can win in this situation. And her dad continues to kind of have me by the throat, metaphorically and physically in so many ways, because here my voice is being restricted, my knowing, my, my right to give my daughter a childhood free from this kind of upheaval is being threatened. Through it all, what I'm noticing is that I, I really need to take care of myself and to lean into my mindfulness practice and my coping skills, these ways that I regulate. And I'm going to have to just do the best I can and go slowly and use this capacity for discernment that I have cultivated through many, many hours of sitting with what's arising in meditation. I want to offer the plan of action that I have for myself over the next few weeks as I face this tremendous upheaval in my life and my daughter's life with the risk of potentially having a permanently impacted relationship with her depending upon what decisions I make and what I say no to. The Welcome You podcast is a production of Safe Within Wellness, an organization dedicated to supporting survivors of complex and systemic trauma in healing their wounds of belonging and thriving in relationship to themselves. Please help us keep our content ad-free and accessible to all by donating at safewithinwellness.com. 
Your presence and support matter more than you know. The first and foremost that I need to remind myself of over and over again is to not engage. As tempted as I am to sit down this morning and write a response to the ridiculous email where her father asked me for $2,000 to pay for a therapy program that he thinks will help him, and another email in which he suggests this unaccompanied minor flight during which she misses a week of school. You know, I have so many things I want to angrily type in response. No response is a response. And I will find a way between now and when this time comes to explain my decision to my daughter and to refrain from participating in this emotional hijacking that her father is such an expert in. So in addition to just not responding to the email, this also means not participating in the temptation to go into ruminative thinking. And so these intrusive thoughts are such a big part of what really troubles me. And this is, this is a symptom of post-traumatic stress. And last night, for many, many hours, I was lying awake and I did all the things that I've done in the past to try to support bringing attention out of my thoughts and back into my body, including a guided body scan, including some rhythmic breathing, including getting out a book and turning on the light and reading for a while. You know, it was very difficult for me to find rest last night because I was really being badgered by these intrusive thoughts. Allowing that to happen for myself is also a way that I'm participating. I don't want him to have that power over me. So today, I'm going to make sure that I get plenty of exercise, that I do my mindful movement practice so that I'm really cultivating this capacity to shift my attention to my felt experience and take up residency in my body rather than be hooked into my thoughts. I'm also going to do a practice later of watching my thoughts come and go, practicing not attaching to them. I like to use the metaphor of being on the platform at a train station and watching the train go by rather than getting carried away on the train. And when I notice that I've been carried away on a train of thought, with so much kindness, I simply return my attention to the perspective of the witness and the observer, just watching thoughts come and go. This is a really critical element of the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy program. And one of the key phrases, the key takeaways there, there's kind of two ways to say it. One is don't believe everything you think and thoughts aren't facts. So remembering this, that these thoughts that I'm having are not facts is really important because when we catastrophize, when we have anxiety, we tend to leap to the worst case scenario. And I shared this with my daughter yesterday because I, I wanted her to know, wanted to kind of name it to tame it, right? So I said, you know, my worst fear, sweetie, my worst fear is that I'm gonna do the best I can to make decisions that I think are good for both of us and you're going to hate me for those decisions. And she said, no, of course I would never hate you. I will always love you no matter what because she's an amazing kiddo with all of this equanimity and compassion and wisdom. And the truth is, the reality is she is 
10 years old. And she's in a phase of her life where she's going to be experiencing big swings of emotions. And I wouldn't be surprised if at certain points she does direct some of that anger and blame towards me. So, you know, that that is my worst fear. And and I've, I've seen this called kind of the worst case scenario game. It can actually help. It can be a tactic for dealing with anxiety when you have anxiety about a situation. It can be kind of a, a fun exercise to say, well, what's the worst that could happen? And to really go for it, like flesh out the super duper worst that could happen. And when I do this with my daughter, it's funny because she ends up going towards things like, well, you know, I could make a mistake and it causes a tsunami and then that turns into a black hole and then the entire planet is destroyed. And, you know, she really quickly goes to, you know, I would be responsible for the destruction of everything. Seeing the ridiculousness of that really helps put things into perspective. So that's kind of one direction we could take it is to play the worst case scenario game. The other direction is, you know, this this question that I asked her after I asked her what's wrong and she had no idea. And then I asked her what's right. Practicing in moments of stability as well as in moments of difficulty. Bringing attention to what's good, what's working, what's okay, what's stable, what's pleasant. Where is there kindness happening in your life? Where is there resource happening? And, and these can be really basic things that you bring attention to. Another way to do this practice is a, a gratitude practice, just listing things that you're grateful for. But I mean, you might even just start with, well, there's food in the fridge. I have clothes that fit and don't have holes in them. I have a roof over my head. I have dogs that are sweet and cuddly and adore me. The sun is shining. Really basic kind of present moment resources looking at where are our basic needs being met and if basic needs are not being met that becomes the first point of action so we need to get our basic needs met before we can regulate and stabilize ourselves in the midst of these crises and upheavals number one was don't engage don't participate number two was this kind of being the conductor of your own attention noticing when you're getting hijacked and identifying that thoughts are not facts and practicing this kind of compassionate witnessing of watching thoughts come and go from the platform. And number three, this practice that I'm gonna use all day for the rest of the day is bringing attention to what's already working, bringing attention to what's good, what's pleasant, where is there opportunity for appreciation and gratitude. In addition, I'm gonna keep my body moving. I'm going to take a long walk with the dogs today. I'm gonna to make sure I regularly stand up from my computer and stretch. I'm gonna move my body with awareness. And I don't necessarily need to do difficult or highly engaged postures, but what I do wanna do is I wanna feel my body from fingertip to fingertip, from the top of my head down to the bottom of my feet. And I wanna give myself permission to take up space in my body to feel the physical sensations that I'm feeling in the present moment. The other thing is to use movement to externalize feelings. So you can do this by 
dancing. You can do it by throwing rocks in a river. You can do it by pounding on a pillow. You can do it in the way that my daughter did by banging on the piano or just somehow allowing your body to physically express the energy that is related to these big feelings that you have. Okay, so our final intervention for this kind of crisis moment in life is to really be the gatekeeper of what you're taking in. So for me, one of my primary kind of maladaptive coping mechanisms is binge watching television and eating ice cream. And as I name this, it seems kind of silly, but it really can be problematic for me. For one, I tend to get lost for hours and hours and hours inside of shows. And then what's happening is that that material is kind of swirling around in my brain, taking up all of this space, all of this mental real estate. The eating ice cream, I tend to overeat and then I don't feel very good for the rest of the night or even the next day. I am then also shaming myself, this kind of second arrow of shaming myself for having eaten so much ice cream. As a large bodied woman, I have a long relationship with disordered eating and with giving myself a hard time for everything that I have eaten the day before and considering it a moment of weakness. So really bringing some care and attention to what I'm taking in as an investment in my future self. What does this mean for me today? This means today I'm going to make myself a smoothie with lots of vegetables and coconut water and hemp seeds and chia seeds and maca powder and just put all of these delicious, nutritious, healthy, nourishing foods together in a way that I can easily ingest them. And that becomes you know, actually pretty delicious and quite pleasurable for me to take that in because it feels good. And so that's one thing that I'm going to do today to take care of myself. The other thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to make a commitment to not turn on the television and to not scroll on Facebook or Instagram and to keep my awareness and my attention really firmly grounded with my own experience in the present moment and to be the gatekeeper of what I take in. This gives me the space to be with what's arising for me and gives me the opportunity to not necessarily shove my feelings away and numb them or ignore them or cover them up with a layer of chocolate syrup, but to be with what comes and goes as it arises. There's some evidence from neuroscience that when we have a big emotion or an emotion at all, that the experience of the emotion lasts for about 90 seconds in the body. If we continue to experience that emotion, it's because we are re-triggering it with our thoughts. And so if we can allow ourselves to feel what we feel and watch the rising and passing of the emotion from this perspective of the compassionate friend, the compassionate witness to our experience, this can really support then asking ourselves, given what's here, how can I best tend to what's arising? Recently, I wrote an article about shame on top of shame. 
and how common that is for survivors of relational trauma to shame themselves for feeling shame and to bury their shame under layers and layers of more shame. And what's important to mention here is that the antidote to doing this shaming of ourselves is to bring awareness, loving awareness to our awareness. Awareness of awareness is kind of this higher level practice and and it can be done in a number of ways. We can do it by simply witnessing, stepping into this perspective of the witness and the observer, witnessing that we're taking care of ourselves, witnessing that we're bringing awareness and attention to our own experience and holding ourselves. So you might do this in a physical way by placing a hand on your heart or on your belly, offering yourself a soothing somatic hold, such as wrapping your arms around yourself in a self-hug, and then taking that extra step of noticing that you're doing this for yourself. Another way to practice awareness of awareness is by really externalizing your story. And there's lots of ways to do this. You can do it with art. You can do it by painting or drawing. You can do it by creating something. Go out in nature and gather some sticks or some pine cones or some stones and build something and then maybe destroy it and give yourself permission to take this experience that's that's in your body of a big emotion and somehow put it outside your body. My favorite way to do this is actually through writing. There's a number of prompts that I'm going to offer you here in a link attached to this episode that can support you in starting to access these pieces of your story where there are stored emotions. And when you write these things down, you're actually physically going through a process of pulling them out of isolation from inside of your memory and inside of your mind, and you're putting them on the page. So now you've you've brought awareness to them. And then what I'm going to invite you to do is actually to read aloud, whether there's somebody in the room or not, but to read aloud what you've written. If you can find somebody to read to, this can be a very powerful way of being witnessed in your witnessing. So bringing awareness to your awareness. Writing can be very, very healing. One of the principles of narrative therapy is that when we externalize our emotions and bring this perspective of the witness to our experience, we're actually doing this alchemy, this transforming of poison into medicine. If we can do this in a way that is actually shared with another human being, then we're no longer holding our experience all by ourselves. We're no longer in it alone. So that's one of the things I'm doing here in this podcast for myself, actually, is naming my experience, bringing awareness to it, and then sending it out into the world in such a way that I'm not holding it all by myself anymore. So I invite you over the coming weeks, months, to bring yourself these moments of kindness, caring for yourself as best you can, given what's arising, and also feel free to continue to follow along with my journey to see how this all unfolds for me. And I'm sure that I will have moments of not coping very well 
with what's happening. And my hope is because I have this goal throughout my life of being the mom I didn't get to have. My hope is that I will be able to lean into my practice that has been cultivated over many years just for moments like this so that it can sustain me and ripple outwards so that I can be a port in the storm for my daughter and I can be the mom that I didn't get to have. May you be the light for yourself in dark places. And may you also be willing to do this work, practice these radical acts of compassion and care for yourself as a gift to those in your circle of care. And if you're a parent, as an opportunity to stay regulated and non-reactive through crises. I would like to invite anyone who's listening right now who is experiencing any kind of challenge or relational struggle or just a question that you have around your relationship to yourself to please go ahead and give me a call. I love receiving your questions. You can call 719-759-9471 and leave an up to three minute voicemail sharing your story. And I encourage you to do this even if you aren't sure whether your story is relevant to anyone else because one of the tendencies of survivors of relational trauma and emotional abuse is to minimize their story and to believe that they're the only one experiencing this. As you move forward through the rest of your day, I would invite you before you step away from this podcast to just plan one thing that you're going to do today to take care of yourself. And that's for all of you listening. What is one thing that you can do before this day is over to send yourself the love and care that you deserve? And I look forward to welcoming you again next time you find your way to the Welcome You podcast. The Welcome You podcast is a production of Safe Within Wellness, an organization dedicated to supporting survivors of complex and systemic trauma in healing their wounds of belonging and thriving in relationship to themselves. Please help us keep our content ad-free and accessible to all by donating at safewithinwellness.com. Your presence and support matter more than you know.